Okay, Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is the final prophecy in the book of Daniel. And because it's the final prophecy, it carries a lot of impact, a lot of weight in the overall purpose and importance in the book. And yet it's probably the, the least understood of the prophecies and the, less, the least believed in its details of all the prophecies. It's so important that it had an introduction in chapter 10. For a whole chapter, Daniel was flat on his face getting prepared in prayer to meet God and meet the truth. And then in chapter 11, um, the prophecy is spoken through the angel and it continues on through chapter, two, or, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And then after chap, uh, verse 2 of, of chapter 12, we really have the epilogue of the book where everything's tied up. Okay? Uh, last time we began to tackle the final prophecy in the book of Daniel. And... And it was an incredible prophecy that had not been fulfilled when it was delivered to Daniel. However, the section that we tackled in Daniel chapter 11 has been fulfilled for us. I mean, it's passed to us. For we learned about, remember we learned about the Medo-Persian Empire in one verse. And then we had one verse on Greece, how Greece would come after Medo-Persia and four generals would spring out of Greece. And then most of chapter 11 really wasn't about Medo-Persia and Alexander the Great in Greece, but two of the four generals and, and the wars between the two generals, one to the north, the Syrians, and, and, and the general that took over the south in Egypt, the Ptolemies. And the constant warring for years between the Syrians and the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt. And it went back and forth in verses 8 through 12 uh, of, of chapter 11. We went through the detail after detail. The king of the south had the upper hand and was winning that whole time in verses 8 through 12. And then thir uh, verses 13 through 20, the king of the north has the upper hand in Daniel chapter 11. And, and just at that point in the king of the north, a very bad man, a despicable man, the text says, rises up in verses 21 through 35. He is another Syrian king from the hometown of Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we ended with his tyranny over the people of the Jews and the abomination of desolation uh, where he set up a statue to Zeus and he slaughtered a pig and he slaughtered the Jews and, and it was really hard on the Jews. The hypocrites bought in and tried to bow down to this guy and, and say well, whatever you want and then there was the hammer, the Maccabeans who stood up for the truth and, and we're strengthened during that time. And that's kind of where we, we ended that section. Now today we turn to verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11. And we turn to events that to us are yet future. They have not occurred yet. And guess what? Guess what my 
approach to the prophecy is going to be in verses 36 through 45. Even though it's yet future to us. Imagine that the approach to interpreting the prophecy will be just like the approach of of interpreting the prophecy in verses 1 through 35. For we see that those were historical realities. A little bit almost seemed a little symbolically vague sometimes, and, but yet right beneath the symbol, right beneath the surface is a real literal historical correspondence that when they saw it in the future, like, wow, look at that. That's what happened. And that's what happened right there. And it's a lot easier to look at the history books and then to go back and say and to match them up than it is when they haven't happened yet. And to try to think, what would that look like? Much more difficult, the task ahead of us. However, the interpretation should seem similar. It's handled the same way as we come into this section. So let's just start reading, and then we'll, we'll start plowing into this and see how far we get. Um, I won't look at my notes as much tonight because I think it's more in my head than on paper tonight from what I've been studying. Hopefully it'll be clear as I, as I teach this passage and at least we'll learn something. Daniel chapter 11, and let's pick it up in verse 32 just at the end of Antiochus Epiphany the fourth in the past when he before Christ was born, um, about 168 B.C., was terrorizing the Jews. And we'll start in verse 31. Forces from him, from Antiochus Epiphanes IV, verse 31, will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. And many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them pure until the end of time until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Verse 38. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. 
At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And verse 4 through 13 is the epilogue of the book, and so ends the, the great prophecies of the book of Daniel. So Jim volunteered now to come up and preach the rest of the sermon. So Jim, did you, did you get the text? There's many different ways to present this material tonight. Um, let me just be honest and say that I've never been a five-view kind of a preacher. You know that. There are five views on this passage. Tonight, I am. There are two views on a portion of this passage. To me, it's not the important issue, though. The important, the important issues, I'm going to, I think, I hope, prove to you tonight. The debated issue, I think it's going to be some good food for thought over the years. I'll give you both of those views. I'll give you the nod. I'll tell you which one I think it is. And I think I could do pretty well in a debate because I've studied this and you haven't. Yes. But you may say, you know what, Jeff, what about this? Oh, yeah, good point. And I think that's going to be kind of fun for us all to grow in humility as we look at this amazing passage. So we're going to answer four questions tonight uh, about the king about the king in Daniel 36 through 45. Then the king will do as he pleases. There's a character here called the king. He's never been mentioned before in Daniel chapter 11. So let's first answer the question, what is the timing of the king? What is the timing of the king in verses 36 through 45? What's the timing here? Well, I believe the king mentioned here is the future eschatological king who will be presented to the world at the end in Daniel's 70th week. 
the last week of Daniel, during the tribulation, right before, or at least seven years before the second coming of Christ. Probably three and a half years before anybody gets who he really is. So I think there's a big gap, a big gap of time between verse 35 and verse 36. So the timing of our verses, I think, is yet future to us. And I think we clearly demonstrated between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel that there was a gap between those two weeks in Daniel chapter 9 at the end of Daniel chapter 9. I did three sermons on that. I can't rehearse that now. I think that was clearly demonstrated and gives a pattern um, for this gap here in this place. You can listen to those sermons if you like to see if you thought that I provided a convincing argument for a gap between the 69th year, which ended with the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, we showed, and a gap between that event and then a time when a covenant is cut with Israel from one like a prince, a nasty prince, who we call the big A Antichrist. And I think this speaks in verse 36, begins to pick up that 70th week of Daniel. In fact, if you get anything tonight and you want to think about this further, verse 36 through 2 of chapter 12 is really the 70th week of Daniel, seven years before the second coming of Christ. Why do I think verses 36 and 45 are yet future? When the verses right before, 32 through 35, referred clearly to Antiochus Epiphanes IV in 168 B.C. Well, I'll give you the reasons, but let me give credit where credit is due. You don't preach sermons like this on your own. If you do, you're an idiot. You're not a genius. You're an idiot. Or a genius. But I will say this, Dr. Beecham, thank you, my Hebrew professor, hugely helpful here. And also, you may want to read an article by a man named George Harton who did a great journal article on this section in, 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 uh, and I can get that for you if you're really interested at some point. And other commentators always, you know, I did my own study, but I'm really thankful for those two that really helped me here. Why do I think this is future? Well, Um, Let me give you some reasons. Number one, you can take notes. I think there's a natural chronological break in the text between verse 35 and 36. There's a natural chronological break in the text. In verse 35, there's a kind of culminating, summarizing feel to it. And the specific clauses are a kind of a stop to the historical events. And, And they not only put a stop to it and summarize it, kind of culminate it, spiritually and even physically, but they throw it to the end. They also specifically in the terminology throw it to the end. Um, Just the the words that are used, throw it to the end. Look at the end of verse 35, and make them pure, and make them pure until the end time. This is speaking of the, the the purification of the people of Israel, and they're still being purified today. It's the history and plight of 
the sinful people of Israel. And frankly, it's our plate too as the people of God as sin is purged out of us by the trials of this life. And the proof of faith floats to the surface that is more precious than gold, more than much fine gold. And so I think this here is again throwing it forward as a, as a sampling of what's going to be happening until it culminates at the end time. So I think it throws it forward in verse 35. Harton says, the guy I mentioned quotes, verse 35 appears to summarize the continuation of the established pattern of the suffering of Israel during the times of the Gentiles until the end time, in quotes. So the, the end time is kind of a technical term in the book of Daniel, um, which refers to the latter days, the final days of the eschaton, of the end. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 14, that by the time they got poor Daniel off his face and onto his hands and knees, and the angel could speak to him and he could understand it, the angel explained that the vision of 11 and the first part of 12 is going to give an understanding verse of Daniel chapter 10, verse 14, as to what happened to the people of Israel in the latter days. Again, a technical term for the end. And so this prophecy has got to culminate at the end, just like the statue, just like one coming like the Son of Man, just like chapter 8, just like chapter 9. So also the final culminating chapter must culminate at the end. It's the pattern of the book of Daniel. Number two, here's the second reason. So I, like, I think that the text itself, the chronological break, is, real, is, is a tell, telltale sign. Number two, there's a lack of historical correspondence. Write that down and think about it later. There's a lack of historical correspondence. Here's what I mean. The events recorded in verse 2 through 35 that we attempted, and I mean attempted. We didn't do very good. Uh, I'm just, I don't have a mouse in my pocket. I'm including you into that. because It was hard to cover all that material. I think it was too much. But I'm saying we could do it. There's events in history that corresponded exactly to the text, literally, historically, fulfilled. It was incredible, the God of the details. And so also here. The problem is, because that's how we're interpreting the prophecy, we're looking for historical correspondence in the history and campaign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And if anything, it's over and anticlimactic when we get to this section. It's like, that all makes sense. That all happened in his history. But much of what we see here doesn't fit the historical information for Antiochus Epiphanes IV. It doesn't fit. There's no historical correspondence here. And so I think that gives evidence that this is not the continuation of Antiochus Epiphanes IV in verse 36. And by the way, we almost all agree on the point that I'm making now. This is not the point that I disagree with myself on. The liberal scholars must make this Antiochus Epiphanes IV. They must. And it had, Daniel had to write it, or someone, Daniel, he's dead. Somebody had to write it after the Maccabean revolt, or God could tell the future, and we can't have that. Number three reason I think this is future, because there's a brand new person here. There's a new personage. There's a new person here, okay? So we've had 
the king of the north, we've had the king of the south, but in verse 36 we've got a brand new person and then he's called the king. The king. A new person is introduced and this king does as he pleases. He's a new player. He's a new player. And by the way, he's attacked by the king of the south. And by the way, he's attacked by the king of the north. He is not the king of the north. He's attacked by the king of the north. There's a new player here, which also supports this new, a new thing happening. Okay? And I think convincingly, and I saved the best for last, is the fact that at the time that 45, thir- verse 36 through 45 is written, is the time when the resurrection occurs. If you know anything about eschatology, unless we've got some serious talking to do, which we might, the resurrection is yet future. So if you look at chapter 12 and verse 1, the text says, now at that time, now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard and so in great distress, they'll be rescued and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. This is... This is eschatological language par excellence. The resurrection is connected to the events that begin at verse 36. And then there's verse 40, at the end time. A technical term as well that tucks it back there. So it seems as if the events of the king and all these events surrounding him uh, occur sequentially, ending... Uh, in the second coming of Christ and the resurrection and those culminating events. Okay, so that's the timing. I think this is huge. If you get only this, this is yet future. Now, just hold on a minute. It's, it's fascinating when you're looking at history and you're able to go back to the details and say, wow, that was that and this was this and that happened and that wife took that person to that kind of detail of, of marriages and treaties and all of that. Well, if that's how we're interpreting the Scripture, let me tell you, the passage we're covering tonight is the future events of world history written in gory detail, just like the past events. And that, when that hit me, it made me tingle. My hands tingled. I didn't know if I had a flare-up of my disc herniation or what. I was like, this is incredible. What if I'm wrong on this? But we ought to look into this. We ought to be, God knows the future and He's given it this snapshot of this passage is yet future. That's incredible. God knows the future and we have it in this book. And that ought to get you excited about this book. A third of this book is prophecy. Two-thirds of the book you already love. One-third of the book you're afraid to death of. Be excited about it all. For it all speaks of Him. Frankly, all this is going to happen because of death, burial, and resurrection, and ongoing intercession, and the second coming as a king of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's wonderful stuff. And that leads us then... The timing, secondly, and this is closely related, of course, what is the identity of the king then in verse 36? We have to be fast with this one. What is then the identity of the king in verse 36? Well, I think you know. I think you've been around long enough to know who it is. 
I don't think you have a name, and I don't think you know the time. And I think that's exactly what the prophets of old scratched their head of when they looked at future revelation, like we are right now, which we rarely do because most of it's past. We scratch our head, not wondering if this should be symbolically interpreted. We scratch our head about the who and about the when, but not about how we do business with prophecy. Just like they did in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. They, they knew that it said suffering before glory. They just didn't know who and they didn't know when. Who is the identity of the king? Well, I think we know enough Bible to figure this out. We don't think it's Antiochus Epiphanes IV, but we see some historical descriptions of Antiochus Epiphanes IV that are very similar to this, to this one. And remember in, in chapter 8, oh, wait a minute, the little horn that came out of Greece was a type of the greater and final horn, little horn, right? The Antichrist. The same thing that is happening in chapter 8, where it escalates at the end, is happening in chapter 11, chapter 11, where it starts with the details of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And almost imperceptibly, well, here I think pretty de- it's delineated pretty well between verses 35 and verses 36, it escalates to the end. The type to the antitype, the greater and he is greater than the first Antiochus in every way. You thought he was bad? Look at him. You thought he desecrated the temple? It wasn't nothing. You thought he was an atheist? He wasn't even close. You thought he was a tyrant? You thought he claimed to be God? Everything's escalated. Not just with the Christ in Scripture, but evil has typology too. So it's, a, so it's the Antichrist sort of anticlimactic, but it's the Antichrist. But I think it's very consistent with what we've seen, the little horn that comes out of Rome in Daniel chapter 7 was the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 9, um, well, I'll just say in Daniel chapter 7, remember, he has a mouth uttering great boasts, this little horn. He's called the beast in chapter 7 that was slain when one like a son of man comes, being destroyed at the second coming of Christ. So Daniel chapter 11, then is the little horn from Rome, the same character in Daniel chapter 7, who is destroyed by the coming of Christ. In Daniel chapter 9, he's there too. Did you know that? Daniel chapter 9 at the end, he's the prince that will come who makes, the text says at the end of Daniel 9, makes a firm covenant with the many, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this, this one is in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Daniel 11, and he'll be show up again in Daniel 12 in the epilogue. He's the Antichrist. He's the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's the beast that comes out of the sea, called the beast in Daniel chapter 7 as well in Revelation 13. I think this is the Antichrist. He's called the king here. And don't forget that 
Antiochus Epiphanes IV in 168 BC prefigures as a type of that final ruler. So the actions and character that we see in Antiochus Epiphanes IV are similar but lesser to the final Antichrist. So I think we have the final eschatological end times Antichrist who is the king in this passage. That is the identity of the king. Third, what will that king be like? What's the character of the king? And we'll run quickly through this um, in two parts. We see the arrogance of the king and we see the aggression of the king. The arrogance and aggression of the king in verses 36 through 39. I mean, he's just arrogant. It's not even a strong, strong enough word. Then the king will do as he pleases, verse 36. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. This king is arrogant. He does as he pleases. He is his own god. And that's why in his mind, he is God. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. Did you hear that? That's not what Antiochus Epiphanes IV did. He put a statue of Zeus up, thank you very much. He had a whole pantheon of Roman gods. This one... He is it. He just exalts. It's a point of fact, Antiochus Epiphanes IV was called God. He kind of got a kick out of it. Kind of liked that a little bit. But this one will set himself up as that. And he will speak monstrous things. Monstrous. I mean, what a Hebrew word that is, which I won't go into. Monstrous things about the God of gods. About the one true God. Of course, he picks out the one true God and blasphemes him with monstrous things. That's what he's like. And he'll prosper until he's finished at the end. For that which is decreed will be done. This king is arrogant beyond all imagination. He exalts himself. He magnifies himself. In fact, he's not only proud like this, but he is really almost subhuman in his behavior. In how he deals with people. He is not a people person. I don't know how this is going to play out. This is future. You see. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the God of his fathers. Elohim, it could be singular, it could be plural, plural, depends on the context. Some have taken that the Antichrist must be a Jew. If this is Elohim singular, God of his fathers, it's almost a technical term for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others say that it's plural Elohim, so he still could be a Gentile. I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to cut a covenant with Israel, be on good terms with Israel for three and a half years, that he would be a Jew. 
He's going to reject. Um, okay, he shall no regard for the God of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify, he says it again, he will magnify himself above them all. So that's emphatic. It says it twice. He rejects the God of his family. There's no regard at all for the God of his family, of his people. As I said, he might be a Jew. Um, he has no desire for women that could be taken so many different ways. So many different ways. He may, he may have a track. He may be a homosexual. I'm not, I'm, I'm not surprised at anything. I mean, but I, I think that maybe more of a technical term that I can't even hardly explain because I hardly get it myself, that he has no desire... He has not the desire for women. See, the women, there's a, the, the cult of religion, the feminine cult of religion throughout, and Christianity has its own version of that. But at the end of the day, it was true that the women all throughout history of the Jews wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. And there was, it's almost like a, a, a technical diss of Christianity here. It could be taken in that sense, although I tend to think that it's going to be more of, um, more of his desires for men sexually than women. That's a pl- more plain reading of it. We'll see. Hasn't happened yet. I guess when it happens, we'll say, oh, that was it. I tend to, I, I tend to not want to put too much of time into this section of it. Um, any event, this man is completely, he, he almost can't call him an atheist because he's God. Does that make sense? That's unique. You've got to look for that. It's, it's unlike anything that it's not anywhere close to Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He knew re- no regard for any other God because he magnifies himself. But, and now tongue-in-cheek, this is almost tongue-in-cheek in prophecy, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And so it's a tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, the God of fortresses is, is personifying war. He worships war. He worships taking over stuff. He worships military might, which is another way of worshiping himself and his power. And he'll honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He plunders the people and he reinvests it in his war machine. His faith is in himself, but his faith is not in himself as much as his faith is in his military might. All right. So he's very proud, very proud, he's very aggressive in verse 39. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And I, I take that again to be still a, still a personification of war there with the help of his war machine. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and cause them to rule over the many. will parcel out land for a price. So he's... He, He's, if you are willing to take 
his mark and to bend your knee, you know, get a little piece of land and life will be okay. (laughs) Not good, but okay. Who is like the beast? Revelation 13, verse 4. Who can make war with him? The God of fortresses. Um, Finally, what is the role of the king in verses 40 through 45? What is the role of the king? And this is where we, this is where I, I guess I don't know. Um, there's two views here. I have a view. I don't particularly like it for certain reasons, but I like it for better reasons, I think. The bottom line is, whatever happens now in verses 40 through 45, we've, we've seen who it is and that this is future. We've seen what he's like. Now, what is he going to do? Or, what is going to be done, what is going to be done at the time he rises to power. Let me say that again. There's two views here. View one. What is he going to do as the aggressor in verses 40 through 45? Which seems to make some sense with how we've described him, admittedly. Or, what is going to be done that causes him to rise up to power so that he can be the beast that we see here in 36 through 39 and we see in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Say, what do you mean? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. There's a great war. Brothers and sisters, listen to me this. There is a great world war coming that is yet future that has not happened yet. There's, there's, a, there's a nation from the north. There's a nation from the south. There's Israel, the beautiful land. And there's the king. And there's other players too, but those are some of the main players in this war. I don't care what view you take here. But look and study out the details. Look at your two good options here. We know kind of when and we kind of know who and we kind of know some of the players that are going to happen towards the end. So let me share with you, aren't you curious? The two views. So let's read the the very crucial thing. There's a mighty armor, north, south. We know Israel's caught in the middle just like before. In chapter 11, we had the king of the north, we had the king of the south, We had Israel caught in the middle, and that was all fine and dandy. And that, like all typology, escalates at the end. With the worst king of the north, king of the south, bigger, more powerful nations. And a a people in the beautiful land caught in the middle. Everything escalates in the end. We all know, we know that, I think, is pretty clear. At least it is to me. However, this is unclear. At the, look at verse 40. These are crucial verses, 40 and 41. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. 
The him is the king, the Antichrist. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. Who? The Antichrist. Guess what? The king of the south and the king of the north at the end are not enemies. They're allies. Against the king. will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Okay, so now, the big question here, I think, is who is the he at the beginning of verse 41? Okay? And the most common view held by many, many people is that the Antichrist is the he in verse 41. And the Antichrist is the aggressor here from verse 41 through 45 to the end. And then he's wiped out off the face of the planet at the end of verse 45. You see? That is the most common view. That's not the view that I hold tonight. But that is the most common view, and there's a lot to be commended for that view. But I'm going to give you an alternate view here. And both of them are going to be set in that last seven years, and um, timing may be a little bit different, the players are a little bit different, but let's just think about this for a second. Take a look at the diagram now, at the two views. Thanks, Ursula, for putting this together, like, literally last second. Okay, so... Number, view number two, I put it view number two because it's my close second. View number one is the view that I hold tonight. View number one is the covenant is cut at the beginning of the tribulation by the Antichrist. And that verses 41 through 45 um, is, this, this is the other view, the Antichrist is attacked by the south attacked by the north and says, watch this, I'm, gonna de- I'm just going to blow this whole world up. I'm going to take this over. And he counterattacks in verse 41. The he in verse 41 is the Antichrist counterattacking view too. And that continues all the way through the last three and a half years and ends with Armageddon. And so this war itself is a description of the battle of Armageddon that, it, that culminates with the destruction of the Antichrist. Okay? Or there's view number one, where the he in verse 41 is not the Antichrist. The he is the king of the north. And the king of the north doesn't have a counterattack, has a continuous attack. And he continues his attack all the way through and comes, the king of the north comes to his end at the end of verse 45. King of the north is, is put down and, the, and, and, and that war occurs right at the middle of the, of the three and a half years. And the Antichrist in his seizes world power, unopposed world power, breaks his covenant with Israel and, the la- and unleashes the last 3.5 years, and then 
Daniel chapter 12, 1 and 2 occurs. Whereas the other view would have to be Daniel 12, 1 and 2, almost just repeating what just happened. Now, why do I hold view number one here? Okay, I hope those, now you can keep looking at this. I, I think it's the king of the north here, continuing attack. Here's the, I got three reasons. One, because of what's called nearest antecedent. What does that mean? Well, especially in the Hebrew, the closest antecedent for the pronoun he in verse 41, see, everyone look at verse 41, see the he there? He will also enter the beautiful land. Who's the he? Well, is it king of the north or is it the antichrist? The closest antecedent is the king of the north. William Foster said, since it is the king of the north who is the active contender here, the natural reading would probably indicate that he also should be the one represented as entering into the countries, close quotes. In the English text, you say, wait a minute here, the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen, and he, the nearest antecedent, is the other pronoun him. Couldn't that be the Antichrist? And then that would be the nearest antecedent. The problem is, is the Hebrew text has, doesn't have it that way. In the Hebrew text, it says this, and he will whirl against him, king of the north, and he will whirl, the king of the north, he is the he, he will whirl against him, king of the north, with chariots and horsemen, with ships, and he will go into the countries and overflow and pass through. Through, And you read it that way, with a nearest antecedent thrown back, and, the, and it's connected directly to the king of the north. And the king of the north is all the ones with all the active verbs. He's the one that's attacking the Antichrist. He's therefore the one that's passing through. I think it makes good sense that this could be the king of the north, which is he, 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 he. It's always he all the way to the end in verse 45. I think that's a really solid view. The other reason that I think um, this is pro- the king of the north, is the geographical progression of the war that, w- that we're going to look at, verses 40 through 43, if, if you read the details. It starts in the north, comes to the beautiful land, and comes to Egypt, and then comes to North Africa. It starts in the north and it comes down. The geographical order favors the view of the king of the north. Third, reason I hold this view is, and, and maybe I'm too much of a stickler for details, and I, I could be wrong. I'm a biblical, big picture, biblical theology guy, so I'm going to hold a lot of tension in this view, but look at 12 verse 1 says, now at that time, doesn't it? So what just happened is somebody got toasted at the end of verse 45. Am I right? These chapter divisions get in the way. Someone got toasted at the end of chapter 45. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. He's the angel that's a guardian angel over Israel and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. I believe that this is the war, Gog from Magog, the northern, the Syrian, from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, 
from Joel chapter 2, verse 23, from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, there's a great northern evildoer who has to be accounted for in biblical prophecy. And he rages against Israel. And I believe that this is an account of the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then the Antichrist arises unopposed in the middle of the tribulation and unleashes, as it were, the great tribulation. And then a time of great distress will occur. And that's why I say in the little diagram, wherever it went, that then Daniel 12, 1 and 2 happens. Okay, so those are the two views uh, uh, here. So we're going to just track the interpretation of view one and see how it plays out. And we could then take another hour and track the interpretation of view two, type it all out, plaster them on the wall like some weirdos and see which one is going to take place. Because I think one of those two options is really, really good. Now, uh, let's see. I think so. I'm going to go with the aggressor here um, is the king of the north. King of the north, king of the south. Who are they? Um, Briefly, the king of the south here is not Egypt. The king of the south here is Libya and Ethiopia from northern Africa. Um, They're mentioned here uh, in verse 43. Um, In Egypt, it's almost as if the area gets bigger and more expansive in power. It's like Egypt was the king of the south before, and she's such a small player for the bigger southern army in the end. The same with north. You think Syria right next to Israel is small potatoes. It's something bigger. It's something more north. It's something more expansive with more power. It's something that the king of the north must pass through countries, plural, to get to the beautiful land. Syria does not fit that bill of passing through countries to get to the beautiful land. It's something more north. It's something bigger. It's more powerful. There's two huge world superpowers at play. King of the north, king of the south. I'm not going to label them. It's mean. And you know what? Labels change over time in prophecy. We don't worry about all of those things. You say, that's not literal. Yes, it is. Talk to me later. There's right beneath, there's a meaning of that text right beneath. It's from the north, it's from the north. So, verse 41 says, the king of the north will enter countries and overflow them. Okay, so let's go, let's let's track this a little bit. I'm not going to read anything in Ezekiel 38. You can do that tonight and you'll say, wow, that sounds exactly like this battle. Ding! It really does. The king, the Roman ruler, is opposed by two opponents. We know he's got two opponents. The king of the south, the king of the north are after this guy initially. He's sneaky. I think he bows out for a time. I think that's the weakest, the weakest part of my view because I don't see any bowing out in verses 36 through 39. 
But I think the king of the north comes against the Antichrist. The king of the south comes against the Antichrist. The king of the north continues on. And he heads down. So the king of the south attacks the Antichrist from the south. Doesn't appear to make much headway. And all the focus is on the king of the north. The king of the north moves from the north to, to the ally of, of, of the one called the Antichrist, who's right now a really nice guy. He's just a talker. He's brought peace to Israel. Israel loves this guy. Ally Egypt. Ally Israel. Bigger nations are coming in. He is just, hmm, he knows what he's doing. He refers to the king of the north at the end of verse 40. Okay, he will also enter the beautiful land. So now he's coming down from the north. Beautiful land, that's Israel. Many countries will fall. So let's say that's the king of the north coming in. These will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So the king of the north passes into Israel, which is the beautiful land, right? Got that? He's coming south. But he just doesn't, doesn't seem to deal with, he doesn't seem to deal with um, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, the Transjordan nations. It's like he's out of their way. He's heading south. He's more concerned about Israel and Egypt and going south. He kind of leaves them alone for whatever reason. He leaves them, and we know, to the hand of God who brings his own specific judgment in the book of Jeremiah against those nations. He is not going to be the hand of judgment against those nations. He leaves them alone. The text says it. It's going to happen. Maybe he doesn't have concern. Maybe they're somehow sympathetic to the king of the north. We don't know. But God judges them in Zechariah chapter 2 himself. Now let's read verse 42 and notice that the king of the north keeps heading south in verse 42. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. So he's heading south now further and he's entered into the land of Egypt. So he pressed into the beautiful land of Israel, continues to head south to other countries, specifically Egypt. The king of the north, the king of the south, remember, they, they were allies. They were both at war against this king against Rome and, and the king. And so the king of the north continues to head south and comes to the, really the aid of the king of the south that really didn't get anywhere even against Egypt. He just kind of stops right there. The king of the south can't get up any further. He comes to an aid. That's Libya and Ethiopia have been stalled there. And then verse 43 occurs. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. That's, pro- that's probably the, the southern power is now in his wake in, as an ally, having been now overcome the thing that was keeping them from moving and approaching, having overcome Egypt itself. So the prophecy of the northern king sweeping into Egypt, defeating Egypt. Listen, listen carefully. The prophecy of a northern king sweeping into Egypt and defeating Egypt is found in Isaiah chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 30, and Isaiah chapter 31. These prophecies have to be accounted for. This is not the battle of Armageddon. I don't think. It could be. 
If I'm off by three and a half years, I still know the players. I still know its future. I still know this. So now Libya and Ethiopia are really in step with the king of the north against Rome as he pillages and ravages Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 38, write this reference down. Ezekiel 38 and verse 5, we see that, that God in the land of Magog, Gog, not God, Gog in the land of Magog from the north is an ally of Ethiopia and Put. Same area, northern Africa, the south. Ezekiel 38 verse 5, it's amazing. So now the king of the north is has gone through Israel. He's defeated each, and now he controls the whole central land bridge and is able to take on. He's got all the power. He's got his ally freed up. All right, let's go together, and let's take this guy, and let's take Rome, and let's take control. He turns his sights to, to, to go in to finish off the king. But then something disturbing, hap- disturbing happens to him in verse 44. Very disturbing. But rumors from the east and from the north disturb him. So now he's down south. He's down south. And rumors from the north and the east disturb him. Rumors from back in Israel, back where he's been. And he will go forth in great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his tent of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. He goes back to Israel, the beautiful land where the holy mountain is. Because he's down south and rumors from the northeast are going, uh-oh, what's going on here? He goes back. He goes between the city and the sea in the Shephelah, in the lowlands. He sets up camp there. And those who hold the Battle of Armageddon think it's just a little bit north in the valley of Armageddon here. I don't think so. I think it's not the same battle. And he will come to his end and no one will help him. He's ready to fight. He's ready to take over the world. And Israel's hated northern enemy, the Assyrian, the northerner, Gog of Magog, comes to his end by the hand of God. This prophesied in Ezekiel 38, 17 through 23. And Isaiah 31, verse 8. Here's Ezekiel 38, verse 18. It will come about on that day when Gog comes from the land, uh, when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, and in my blazing wrath. I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all those creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and I'll rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. A torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. They will know that I am the Lord. And the northern forces will come to his end and no one will help him. And the willful king with the southern alliance is gone. And I believe the Antichrist then in his wake arises 
in power, uncontested. And then at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and the last half of the tribulation occurs and we'll cover that next time with the rescue, the resurrection, and the reward of the people of Israel. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We were astounded last time, Ursula, weren't we, that God knows the details of the future in that last sermon. We had no idea what I was talking about, but we were astounded by it. Guys, this is yet future. The details will be fulfilled in the same way as the previous details were fulfilled. This is yet future. There's a great war coming. World powers. And Israel is in the middle of this. And God will intervene. And God will win in history. But I'm telling you what. Whose team do you want to be on? God's team? You want to be on Christ's team or the Antichrist team? You will be on one team in that day. You'll either be for or against the real Christ. The Antichrist is so powerful, so miraculous, that people will be confused that even the elect might be deceived by him. But let me tell you, and I give Dr. Aiken credit as we end on this, let's reflect on the Antichrist and the Christ as we close. You choose tonight. There is a war coming. We are part of the spiritual war now. And there's, it's happening, right? There's a war behind the war. And we're involved. We've got to get involved. We've got to turn the TV off. We've got to sh- get some smelling salts. We've got to wake up. Whose team are you on? The Antichrist? He's despised. Chapter 11, verse 20 is a picture of that. Jesus is to be desired. The Antichrist is deceitful. Jesus is truthful. The Antichrist hates the Holy Covenant. Jesus Christ loves God's Holy Covenant. The Antichrist desecrates the temple. And Jesus cleanses the temple. The Antichrist abolishes sacrifices. Jesus made the sacrifice once and for all time. The Antichrist persecutes and murders the people of God. And Jesus refines and purifies and saves the people of God. The Antichrist is willful and Jesus is submissive. Antichrist exalts himself and Jesus humbled himself and took upon this stuff and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory of one hanging upon the tree in humility. The world will reject this kind of ruler. We know who he is. Or will we? This is the Antichrist is the God of war and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The Antichrist kingdom will come to an end, but Jesus' kingdom will endure forever.
Make your choice. Bend the knee to Jesus now. Bend the knee to Jesus now. Or you will bend the knee to Antichrist later. Period. Did you know me? Did you hear that? Bend the knee to Jesus now. Or you will bend the knee to Antichrist later. Later. 